Okay, we are a people of the Word of God. That means we lean into what is revealed to us. We don't stand over the Word, telling it, what, uh, giving it parameters by which it speaks to us. We stand under it, receiving what is there. Whether that's encouraging text or whether that is a challenging text, this week is another challenging text, similar to last week, but uh, just a little bit more intense, if you will. Uh, as is our custom, we will read a good portion of the text out loud, and if you are able, it is a little bit longer, but if you are able, I invite you to stand for this reading, and we will read responsively, so on your insert, if I could ask you to read the bold, and I will read the, the plain font. Revelation 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary, the tent of witness in heaven, was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished." Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out its bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and was, who is not to be judged, and The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. 
For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go uh, signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go naked to be seen. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, And there were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split in three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Roger. Thank all of you for reading responsively so well. In Return of the King by J.R.R. Tolkien, there is a brief yet powerful scene. It is one that I have used before from the pulpit, so I apologize for repetition, but it is just too good. Frodo and Sam are the hobbit heroes in the story, as you are likely aware, and they are in a grim spot. They find themselves in the terrible land of Mordor. They've just escaped the Orc Tower, Sirith Ungol, and food is low, water is out, and they are still a long way off from their destination, where they are headed to Mount Doom to destroy the evil ring, the one ring to rule them all. Sam is on watch, Frodo's asleep, and suddenly the dark clouds of Mordor part, very briefly, and Sam glimpses a single bright twinkling star. To which Tolkien writes, The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of that forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small passing thing. There was light and beauty forever beyond its reach. We, like Samwise Gamgee, survive the darkness. We survive the pain of life, the evil of this present age, the suffering, by seeing a glimpse of God. We make it through this, this land, which often feels, if we're honest, like that forsaken land of Mordor, by seeing a little glimpse of God, specifically of God making all things right. And that is what Revelation 15 and 16 actually holds out for us. A picture of God making all things right, although we were probably a little uncomfortable with the way he makes things all right, which we will explore throughout this morning. Because Revelation 15 and 16 also hold out to us a sensitive topic if we're being honest. Maybe a topic from which you shy away. 
a topic that maybe your modern ears like to pretend you're too sophisticated to believe. The topic that's a little hard to swallow, if we're being honest. And the topic of which I speak is the wrath of God. The judgment of God. Interestingly, it's not a topic that God is ashamed of. It's not a topic that the Bible avoids. The biblical writers speak of this reality quite often. And when they do, it is actually often in the context of encouraging believers in the present, right now. This is a reality, the wrath of God, the judgment of God in time, and the final judgment to come. Now, I just want to make an aside. I don't know how this happened in our sermon planning, but I would have been blessed with back-to-back really fun texts. Revelation 14 of the final judgment where unbelievers are going to be ground in the winepress of God's wrath poured full strength. And now today, the commonly called seven bowls of God's wrath. But I do think that this is important for us. It ought to function in our lives, but I want to tell you from the outset, there's probably not a lot of smiles and and bubbly, happy emotions going on when we're exploring a weighty topic such as the wrath of God. But I do believe this is supposed to function in our lives. God's wrath for sin is intended to humble us. It's intended to humble believers. When we rightly see the judgment of God against sin and then realize there's no wrath left for us because Jesus already paid for it. And guess what? You didn't do anything to deserve it. That humbles us, if you're honest, if you see clearly. But the other thing a study of God's wrath against sin is intended to do is to urge people to trust Christ. It's a wake-up call. When you see it in history, come to the Lord. This is coming, and it can be avoided, but it's only through Christ. And that is the, the point. You probably heard the refrain throughout 16, specifically with the fourth and the fifth bowls. God pours this out, but they did not repent. They recognize it as God's judgment and they still say, forget you, God. The fifth angel pours out his bowl on the beast and plunges the kingdom into darkness. Yet they did not repent of their deeds. These are wake-up calls to unbelievers. I'm playing my hand from the outset here. This is a difficult section, but it is a section with, with the seven bowls of God's wrath that depict both all of human history between the two comings of Jesus From the Christmas story, the incarnation where Jesus took on flesh, God the Son became man to live and die for us. The Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. And all of history that follows that, until that Lamb comes back as the lion to judge the living and the dead, what does history look like? It includes these seven bulls. Just like it included the seven trumpets. Just like it included the seven seals. We are looking at history, friends. Past, present, and yet still some of it yet future with bowls six and seven. So I have three points for us from these two chapters of Scripture and one quote to share with you. Three, two, one. If you're a note taker, I did not purposefully alliterate this week, but when it happens, you just kind of take it, and it worked out. So the reality of God's wrath is first. Secondly, the reason for God's wrath. And third, and finally, the rescue from God's wrath. 
Okay, so I'm not going to review all of Revelation up to this point, but you should know that just a couple chapters ago, in chapter 12, we were introduced to the story's antagonist. He's called the dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. He's pictured as a dragon who was intent on killing and destroying God the Son in the incarnation, in Jesus' earthly ministry. You can think of the wilderness temptations, Matthew 4. He hates Jesus and he hates his people, but Jesus won. Darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost, as we just sang. My only desire was for Joe to hold on just a little longer with that awkward silence and then come back in. But then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. The dragon's been defeated, but that doesn't mean he's completely gone. He hates God's people, and he has now set his attention on the church, on you, on me as the people of God. And he attacks us through what chapter 13 called the two beasts, the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth. The beast from the sea is all organized human power set against God. It is human regime, human organized power that is not about Jesus. You should see the beast of the sea when you see that. And that beast from the earth came up and propped up the beast of the sea. He is the worldviews, the ways of thinking, the ideologies that make the beast of the sea what he is. And so those beasts, one of the beasts called the false prophet in Revelation 16, along with the dragon form an unholy trinity, an anti-trinity set against our one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Last week in Revelation 14 was yet like a beautiful passage and then weighty. It was beautiful in that we saw all of the church in glory singing the praise of our God, standing with the Lamb who was victorious in glory. And yet we also saw the dreaded future for all who reject Christ who have entrusted themselves to anything that is not Jesus, their future was described with devastating apocalyptic imagery that I've already quoted a little bit. Agrarian language of harvest and sickle and squashing and reaping and crushing. It is hard to hear. But now in chapters 15 and 16, we see the seven bowls of God's wrath, another cycle of seven, which as the careful reader of Revelation, you will know that is important. We saw seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. That is the immediate audience of this letter. The contents of this letter, therefore, needing to have application and importance to the first century churches in Asia Minor. But the number seven, meaning that the book of Revelation is for the whole church, the complete church throughout the ages. We also saw these seven seals and then seven trumpets in chapter 8. And now seven bowls, all of them covering the same period of time, a history leading up to the return of Christ, the end of time, judgment day, all of history. And that was a a fancy long word called recapitulation. You may have remembered that when uh, even Hollywood movies will do this. They tell the story of a character from one point of view, and then it switches and tells the same story from a different point of view. So when you're thinking about the seals and the trumpets and now today's bowls, you could think of it as one author argues. Those seals and trumpets were like incomplete snapshots of life. But now in the bowls, we're seeing more full photographs. What does time look like? What does history include? 
the events of the seals, trumpets, and bowls. Conquest, war, bloodshed, famine, darkness, wickedness, evil. And they are meant to wake up the unbelieving world. And they're meant to to help us entrust ourselves to God. Because when we see these things, we actually know as devastating as they are, God is moving history toward its God-appointed end. And so, let's arrive at our first point, which should not surprise you now, the reality of God's wrath. The reality of God's wrath. God's judgment, excuse my passive voice here, but it, it works, is being experienced. God's wrath is being experienced in time, right now, has been, is, will be, and it will also be ultimately realized in the final judgment. Are we tracking with that? That's what we're seeing. Bowls one through five include all of history, experiences between the two comings of Jesus, and then that sixth and seventh bowl, speaking of Armageddon, and then the it is done, time is done, that is final judgment yet to come. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 16. Basically, because it's so much text, I'm just dropping down on the bold texts. So the text that you were reading, I'm going to just drop down and, and say some comments on those as we go. Verse 1 of chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. I could just wrap us up from this first point. God's wrath is real. It has been experienced, is being experienced, and will be experienced by all who are not in Jesus. Revelation 15 is literarily important for us to understand these bowls. Chapter 15 connects the seven bowls of God's wrath to the Exodus story with Moses. I don't know if you caught all these connections. Let me make a couple of them for you. One, it quotes and mentions Moses by name. The saints in glory are singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Interestingly enough, the song of Moses is Exodus 15. Those verses are not from Exodus 15. It's a a hodgepodge of, of, of exaltation, song to God throughout the Hebrew Bible. They're singing the song of Moses, but it's the culmination of the song of the Lamb, the greater Moses. It's meant to call to mind that these bowls are kind of like what Moses experienced, what what Egypt and Pharaoh experienced. You may have heard uh, that John was standing on a sea of glass. There's a very important sea in the story of Moses. I don't know if you remember that, Red Sea. God leads them by fire and smoke, which is what they are seeing in chapter 15. Even thinking about the bowls as they're poured out, harmful boils or sores on their skin, darkness, the sun scorching, water being turned to blood. It's just, oh, I got it. This is like, this is Pharaoh stuff. God is saying, as I poured out my wrath on Pharaoh and Egypt, an unbelieving and wicked nation, I, God, will also continue to pour out my wrath and my judgment on unbelieving nations and peoples ultimately culminating in my final judgment of the end-time Pharaoh, the dragon and his beasts. The wrath of God in these seven bowls is being poured out 
for sin in the sinful world now and presently and yet will also be finally and ultimately realized in the judgment to come. Now, a, a word of caution here from this first point. So Taylor, if you're saying this is right, that when we see devastations, earthquakes and wars and conquests and fighting and famine and poverty and wickedness and evil kings and regimes, then you're, you're telling me that's the wrath of God. I want us to be careful, though, that when we see devastations, Daryl even prayed about an earthquake rocking the Middle East. I want to give us a word of caution. When we see devastations and disasters experienced in history and even in our day today, our world does not need you, brother or sister, going around saying, ha, see, the wrath of God, you're getting what you deserve. Probably not helpful. We even probably, you could search YouTube not very long, you could probably see people saying that same thing about our own nation with the experience of 9-11. Not helpful, probably. Serves you right. It's the wrath of God getting you. Be careful. But, it's not entirely wrong. What does 16 verse 4 and 5 tell us as they are responding to the, the sight of this devastation in history? The people are singing that they get what they deserve. I told you it's not hard. It's not easy to swallow. There might be a kernel of truth in there, but it's still probably unwise if we desire to reach the lost. And we're just not, we don't know for sure if an event or a disaster or a war that we're seeing in our day and age is or is not the wrath of God. So let wisdom and slowness to speak prevail. But I did think it would be helpful to give you an example. I want to tell you about God's wrath, where you can see it right now. And I say this with trepidation and caution and sensitivity, but I want you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Revelation chapter 1. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 1. We're in Revelation. I want you to go to Romans chapter 1. The Apostle Paul tells us, here's the wrath of God. Let me show you. For the wrath of God is revealed. Okay, Paul's signaling. Let me show you the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Verse 23 tells us what they were doing. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 24, therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26, let this sink in. This is the wrath of God being revealed. Verse 26. This reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women, 
exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. The wrath of God is seen all around you. It's in your workplace, it's in your schools, it's in your classroom. Where do you see the judgment of God? It's anyone with a seared conscience, willfully living lifestyles, disobeying Jesus Christ and his revealed word. Let me make it a little bit more simple. Paul's, excuse, Paul's example here is homosexuality. The LGBTQ plus community in our day and age. When you see someone confused or when you see someone willfully, I am going to live in this lifestyle, that's not someone just making a flippant decision. It's the wrath of God in time. The fact that they're convinced of it and living it out is in fact the judgment of God on them. In that they're convinced and in the fact that they're living it out, wrath. That's weighty. It's not the unforgivable sin. We could have just as easily inserted a, a different sin. Heterosexual sexual relations outside of marriage. Adultery or fornication. When we see those things, it ought to, to move us to pity because that's the judgment of God upon them in time. And unless the Holy Spirit brings them to life, they're going to experience bulls six and seven forever. So 15 and 16 hold out to us that the wrath of God is real. It has been poured out in time. Think of Moses. Think of the Exodus story. Think of a number of different kings where God pours out judgment on nations. Ai, Jericho, the list could go on. It is being experienced in our day and age. The judgment of God is all around you. Perverse thinking, perverse worldviews. Ungodly ways of living. And it will be pulled out, poured out terribly in the judgment to come. So that's the first thing. We're seeing that it's real. We've got to start there. The reality is that God has wrath and will pour it out just like he has been and is. But that leads us to our second point. What, what is the reason for this? My second point is the reason for God's wrath is our sin and his holiness. God is holy, we are not. That's in Revelation 15. It's the first response of song that you guys read as Roger is leading us through the singing. Look at verse 3. They're singing this song of Moses, the song of the Lamb. Verse 3, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Listen to this. For you are holy. All nations will come and worship you for righteous, or for your righteous acts have been revealed. God is holy. 
Now, we could spend an entire sermon series, let alone just one sermon talking about God's holiness and what it entails. But at its core, it's just revealing us to us that God is utterly set apart and different than his creation. He is amazingly, utterly other and wonderful and perfect and pure. God is holy. What that means for us is that God doesn't just do good things. He doesn't just do loving acts. He is goodness. He is love. He is righteousness. He is perfection. He is power. He's without fault. And because God is holy, because he's righteous, friends, he has to be against sin. He has to punish evil because that's what sin is. Sin is rebellion against a holy God. There is no sweeping our sin under God's divine rug and just looking the other way. That would be injustice. God's wrath, as we've clearly seen in these chapters, is his right response to our sin, to our rebellion, to our idolatry, as Revelation calls it, to our messing up of the world. But I do want us to see, I've hinted at this already, God's wrath, his judgment for sin, is good. His punishing of sin and his wrath is right. Last week, we kind of focused on one angle of God's, God's justice in our world, thinking about people experiencing this wrath. You might even recall, if you were here, I was, I was moved by by the end of chapter 14, it's weighty. There's no avoiding it. We were thinking about people that are going to experience this if they continue to refuse Christ. And that chapter encouraged us to be uh, people who pray, who ask, who knock, who seek the Lord, who evangelize the lost, because that's their only hope. This chapter, this section of Revelation, the same thing from a different standpoint, we're supposed to see that God's severity, his wrath, is good. We talk about the making of all things right. God will restore all things in the, the restoration of heaven and earth, the new heavens and the new earth. When the new city, that's our name, comes down and inhabits this earth, he restores and makes all things right. Well, brothers and sisters, check this out. In order for him to make all things right, he has to condemn sin. He has to judge sin. A part of the restoration of all things is the damnation of the dragon and his beasts and all who align with them. The making of all things right means killing death, punishing wickedness, tearing down wicked systems and discarding evil. And in thinking about that, if that is true, I think it is. What should blow our minds is not that God is just. What should astonish us is not the fact that God has wrath for sin and must punish rebellion. That, that shouldn't surprise us when you have a right view of God. What should surprise you is the delay of God's wrath. Why doesn't he just fully and finally pour it out right now? Why didn't he just, Genesis chapter 3, Right after Adam and Eve rebelled against Lord, the Lord, why didn't God justly condemn all of us to eternal punishment? He could have, and he would have been right to do so. What blows my mind 
and astonishes me is not wrath, but God's goodness in delaying it. Why? Well, friends, because I think we need to see the reason for God's wrath is that God's wrath is a response to something. It is a response to sin. It's not inherently who he is. What I mean by that? What I mean is that God's character is primarily, mainly, centrally, ultimately, one of grace and mercy and kindness and love. How do I know that? He told us. The book of Exodus, chapter 34, that, yes, that's the Old Testament scriptures. Second book of the Bible, God tells us who he is. Do you want to know what God is like? Well, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means just clear the guilty. Friends, what that's telling us is God's heart is one primarily of grace and mercy, of love, of invitation, or to use the words of Jesus, gentle and lowly, come to the Lord. That is who he is. But he does rightly have wrath for sin. God is gracious. God is slow to anger. He has wrath for sin. And so at this time, I just pause for a moment and speak to non-Christian friends who are in this room. If you happen to be sitting in our seats, one, just know that we're not always talking about this topic. We're just not avoiding the hard things as we work through Revelation. But if you're not a Christian here today, we welcome you. I'm glad that you are here. Maybe you find yourself even sitting here just kind of wrestling with, maybe you've walked away from the faith and rejected Christ. Maybe you're just unsure and you're still kind of contemplating the, the claims of Jesus. You're the one I want to talk to for just a moment. Whether non-Christian or struggling or having walked away or children, thinking about the faith that your parents keep shoving into your life and pointing you to, I want you to know, yes, we are glad you are here. But I want you to know that God is being very kind to you today. God is being very, very gracious to you right now, today. How do I know that? It's because you're alive. Because you're alive. Because you have breath in your lungs, you actually can contemplate the wrath of God. You can dwell on His judgment, your sinfulness, the forgiveness that is offered in Christ alone, and you can make a decision, friend. It's Jesus or wrath. Just a brief word here about Armageddon, and then I'll give you that quote I promised you. Verse 16 tells us the, they assembled together at a place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. It's Armageddon. There's like an H at the, the beginning. It's a, it's a rough breather there. Armageddon. It's, it's a place that they were familiar with. It's an actual place. Just like the Euphrates River is an actual place. Just like Babylon is an actual place. But 
as is the custom in the book of Revelation, we're not supposed to think about actual geographical locations. This same scene is Genesis, uh, Revelation 19, which we'll look at in a few weeks. The final judgment when Christ, our Savior, comes back riding a white steed and the sword is protruding from his mouth and all of his people are riding with him to the final battle. The final battle is just God, uh, Jesus opening his mouth and the enemies are done. It's not much of a battle, but I'm glad to be on the side that I am. We are supposed to think, as, as Rogers often and, and faithfully uh, reminded us, when you come into a place, you should be thinking, is there anywhere else that this is spoken of in the Old Testament? Yes. This is a place, Harmageddon. They're very familiar with this. This is where evil kings are defeated, where false prophets are judged. We're not to think of, oh, I wonder where Armageddon is. Let's just try to track that and connect the dots. And maybe it's at this, you know, longitude and latitude line. No, we're supposed to know that this is a symbol. This is a prophetic image of the end. Where God is going to finally defeat all leaders who oppose him. Where false prophets are going to be punished. Where evil systems and ideologies that put pressure on God's church are going to fall where the dragon and his beasts are going to be condemned and where evil will be fully and finally eradicated. But the one quote I promised, it's from a book I enjoyed a long time ago, John Piper's book, Taste and See, Savoring the Supremacy of God in All of Life. It's like 125 meditations on God. It's kind of important uh, in helping us savor the supremacy of God in all of life. If you're interested, this is pages 352 and 353. I just want to read this to you, and then we'll look at our third and final point. Dr. Piper says, It was good for me as a boy to hear my preacher father say, with the most earnest expression that I could then imagine, it is appointed unto men once to die. But after this, the judgment. Hebrews 9, 27. It brought a certain weight to my life. And I'm so thankful. Because in order for the gospel to make sense, we must expect and fear the wrath of God. But for the wrath of God to be expected and feared, we must despise sin as an offense against God. But for sin to be despised in this way, we must know and love God as supremely pure and holy and righteous. Until there's a passion for God's supremacy, there will be little fear of his wrath. And without the fear of his wrath, who will sing and shout over the words, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come? 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And if we are not singing and shouting over the good news, why would we bother tell others? Piper writes, we need to dwell on the biblical worldview until it displaces the secular air we breathe every day. And one aspect of that biblical worldview is the reality of the wrath of God. It is so little spoken of. But what could be a more weighty and relevant topic? Without knowing it and feeling it as we ought, our seriousness will be superficial and our happiness will be thin. So, for the sake of your authenticity as a Christian and for the sake of your joy, and for the sake of ballast in your ship, when the winds of silliness threaten your soul, think on the wrath of God. That has been my hope to this point, is to think 
on the wrath of God. We've seen its reality. We've seen the reason for it. But you should be asking yourself about this time, well, what's the hope? Do we have any hope of avoiding the experience of God's wrath? If God is holy, and he is, do we have any hope of not experiencing his just judgment on sin? That's my third point, the rescue from God's wrath. Friends, the rescue from God's wrath is God himself. God himself rescues undeserving sinners from his own just wrath against sin. That's the good news. That's, that's, a, that's the, the craziness, the awesomeness of this story. God's own wrath is avoided because he has provided a way. It's God himself. The work of Father, Son, and Spirit in the cross of Jesus Christ and in his resurrection. It's been implicit in our text. The bold text that you guys read were songs of people who were rescued. It's abundantly clear in Revelation 5 where all of heaven is singing about the Lamb whose blood ransomed a people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. The hope is Jesus, what the Bible calls propitiation. I don't know about you, I didn't use that word this week. It's not a common word just to be throwing around propitiation. But it's what I'm speaking of. A propitiation is a wrath-appeasing sacrifice. It is a sacrifice of atonement or sin offering. And when you hear of this, we're not to look for an animal, we're to look to a person. Jesus is the propitiation. John tells us. Listen to the words of our author John in his first letter. 1 John 4, verse 10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath-appeasing sacrifice for our sins. Christians, we are to be humbled at this point. It's crazy. Crazy is not the right word. Truly awesome is the right word. Be amazed and filled with joy and delight because you do not get and will never get what your sins deserve. I do not get and will never get what I should receive. Damnation for my rebellion. Why will I not get it? Because Jesus was our propitiation. He got what you deserved. He drank the cup of God's wrath. There's none left for us, friends. His life that he lived was as if you lived it. And the death that he died was your death in your place and for your sin and his resurrection. When he burst from the grave and punched death in the mouth was yours. In him, the wrath of God has been drained. What we've been looking at is the experience of those who are not in Christ. There is wrath left for you. A whole bunch of it. Verse 17, I just want to just show you two more verses in less than two minutes. Verse 17 is the seventh angel pouring out his bowl, and the, the seventh bowl is the end, it's over. 
Why? Because it tells us. Look, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came from the temple, from the throne, saying, It is done. Boom. Judgment in the new heavens and the new earth. Commentators are not sure whose voice this actually is. But it is from the throne, and from the throne, always it's either God, the Father himself, or it is the Lamb. I tend to think it's the latter, because it'd be cool. Why? Because the Lamb, standing as though slain, is the voice, the one who voices the end. Are you getting what I'm laying down? The Jesus who hung on the cross and in the moment was experiencing the wrath for your sin, said, it is finished, is the same voice that at the end is going to say, it is done. The same voice that purchased you is the voice that's going to bring us home. That application for us is always when the scriptures speak of this and speak of our faith being made sight is to function now. To live today in light of that day. To be filled with joy and satisfaction in Jesus now because we will always be full of joy when we see him. To be prayers. To be evangelists now because that day is coming. To love God and love neighbor now because this is coming. You just read verse 15 and then we'll close. Verse 15, if you were in a, a red-letter Bible, this is in red because of the voice of Jesus. We're to live now, today, in light of that day because Christ tells us, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. This is language of preparation. Are you looking for this day? Are you thinking about the return of Christ? Are you fighting every day to look through the, the clouds of this often forsaken land or as though it feels that way to see the light that is Jesus shining through like a shaft, cold and clear? What better way to do that together as a family than go to the table? To live today in light of that day, to live today like bulls six and seven could be poured out tomorrow. We're going to the table as a family, as those who've been propitiated, been forgiven, free, and restored in Christ. We don't do this every week just to be wrote about it. We do this because this is a tangible and physical sermon to our senses that Jesus loves you. He's purchased you and saved you from your sins, so there's no more wrath for you, Christian. Here at New City, in a moment after I pray, you'll exit from the sides and receive your bread, symbolizing the body of Jesus, and either red wine or white grape juice symbolizing the blood with which God ransomed you. Return to your seat, holding your elements, and we'll partake together. But as a reminder, friends, this is a Christian meal. This is a meal for those who have trusted in Jesus and said, you can have the wrath of God for me. If you're not a Christian or still kind of wrestling through these claims, I would hold you just, encourage you just to hold off. It's not uncommon for people to remain seated through this time to just think about the words that I've said today. Let me pray for us as we come to the table of our Lamb. Lord God, thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. I do just praise you on behalf of my brothers and sisters here that you are a God who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger, and you abound, Lord. You bubble over in covenant love for us. 
Thank you, Jesus, for experiencing the wrath, the just judgment of the triune God in our place and giving us life eternal. Help us live today in light of that day. Jesus, meet with us now as we commune with you at your table. In your name I pray all of these things. Amen.